Welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Libraries podcast. I'm Kate Price McCarthy here with my co-host Isaac Fravrashi. Hi Isaac. Hi Kate and thank you to our supporter Borrowbox, the library app that lets you download ebooks and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet. The nights are really starting to draw in now. How are you uh, enjoying the cosier evenings? Oh yes, I'm really getting into my reading at the moment. I'm doing a bit of multitasking with books. I'm simultaneously listening to Wolf Hall and the latest Anne Cleves book on Borrowbox, but I'm also reading The Sparshalt Affair by Alan Hollingshurst, who's an absolute favourite of mine. It sounds interesting. I'm going to, uh, I'm starting reading The uh, the Haunting of Hill House uh, by Shirley Jackson, because I love a bit of a spooky ghost story around, uh, around Christmas time. I think it's great. I've heard so many people recommend Shirley Jack- Jackson, but I've not re- read any of her books yet. I will have to go on my to-be-read list. Absolutely. I've read, I've read actually, I've read a few of her short stories before and they're very interesting. They're quite like psychological elements. Claire Fuller, who was a recent uh, interviewee on our podcast, um, she was the first person that got me reading Shirley Jackson or got me interested in reading Shirley Jackson, should I say. She's a huge fan of hers. Later, Vicky from Eastie Library will be joining us to recommend one of her favourite reads. But first, Kay caught up with novelist and popular historian Alison Weir. Yes, her latest novel follows Catherine Parr, and it's the final instalment of Weir's Six Tudor Queens series, which chronicle the lives of Henry VIII's wives. I found Alison a fascinating person to interview because she's got all this incredibly detailed knowledge right on the tips of her fingers. Yeah, and I found it really interesting when I was reading about Alison that she actually started writing when she was a teenager, and the research and the, the kind of narrative that she pulled together when she was a teenager formed her first book and sort of the research in that carried on until the later books as well so really her her writing career started when she was a teenager here's kate speaking with allison thank you very much for joining me to talk about the final book in your series about the six tudor queens and of course, it's the final one. It's got to be Catherine Parr, she, who most of us will know as being the one in the school rhyme who survived. Yes. Uh, she survived her marriage to Henry VIII. Uh, but what makes her such a good subject for you as a writer? She's England's most married queen for a start. And she, she lived her life a bit on the edge because four of those, all those marriages were scenes of conflict. And uh, it, when, when she talked about dangerous liaisons, when she married Henry VIII, she was really setting herself up for, for a, a, a really a, a, for danger because she had two secrets to keep from the king. One was that she was in love with another man whom she'd planned to marry and who Henry, it's good to be the king, had conveniently shipped off abroad on a mission. And of course, the adultery in a queen was high treason by then. So she had to be very careful not to betray that she had these feelings. The other more dangerous secret was that she was a secret Protestant. And this is at a time when Henry is burning Protestants for heresy. And her enemies are poised to just catch her in one slip up. And it's, it's, a, it's a fraught time for her. She clearly had a great passion for learning yes. and was one of the few women 
of her age who was published a book under her own name. She was the first English woman to publish a book and and she published three books actually. The first one was anonymous, the second one was later in Henry's reign and the third was after his death. Uh, they all, um, they're all, ab- ab- she advocates the, the politics of the Reformation. Henry is Moses leading his people out of Pharaoh's Egypt away from Rome. And, uh, you know, she, and she, she speaks, um, you know, very, very deferentially of Henry. She also speaks quite um, strongly on the role of women, that they should be silent and learn, of that, learn from their husbands at home in, after the, exam- after the um, injunctions of St. Paul. But actually her actions belie her words. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. And you think that her intellect and her intelligence was one of the ways that she did kind of survive. She got through the the king's court. I think her emotional intelligence too was was of great advantage to her because on this occasion, on one occasion when the conservatives at court did conspire to bring her down and she'd been disputing with relig- on religion with the king and he was moaning and groaning when, when she'd finished it was, a, it, was, it was coming to something in his old age to be instructed by women who become such clerks and the bishop of winchester winchester <laughs> said suggested to the king that her views were, were heretical and henry agreed that she be uh, questioned at the warrant for her arrest was fortuitously dropped in a gallery and someone loyal to her found it and took it to her and she literally, well, she was hysterical, and wouldn't you be? I don't think this is staged. But Henry came to her, and she, by by sort of uh, appealing to him as an alpha male and saying, you know, I'm a, just a poor, silly woman. Women are such inferior creatures, and I've always deferred to your majesty's wisdom and that, and I only sort of disputed to, to divert you from your pain and to learn from you. And he says, it's so sweetheart, then we are perfect friends again. I think she was cleverer than he thought. But I also think... That he did know about her secret views and that this this was his way of warning her. She seems to have had a very close relationship with Henry's three children. Yes. Uh, could you talk a little bit about this because for example she, the, her role in her education just as her mother had a very important role in her own education and she was quite involved with the Succession Act that allowed Elizabeth I to come to the throne. Yes, she was. And she, she, I mean, her mother had actually set up a school to, to tutor Catherine and her cousins. Her mother had served Catherine of Aragon, was a very learned, feisty, determined lady, um, much of the same stamp as Catherine. And Catherine definitely took an interest in the, the education of Henry's children. She brought him and his children, all from three different mothers, closer than ever before. Uh, it used to be said that she chose their tutors, uh, but that's very unlikely. It, it looks like Henry chose them, but she took an interest and she may have been influential. And you're absolutely right, she, she was almost certainly influential in the passing of the Act of Succession of 1544 that left the throne to Edward, Henry's heir, by, his son by Jane Seymour. Both his daughters had by them been declared bastards, but they weren't, their legitimacy wasn't restored but they were restored to the succession in that year. And I think the hand of Catherine can be seen in that. I think her compassion comes forth. Now, I've heard you say in the past that you don't necessarily start with a mission of having a fresh angle for the subjects you're writing about, no. but that your research almost always leads you to uncover some it, kind it of does. new detail. It does. And I've published a composite biography of the Six Wives, ooh, 1991. And... It's out of date now, and for these these six novels, I've I've extensively re-researched that book, and I've actually rewritten it. It needs a lot of work yet still to be done on it. It will be republished, perhaps as six books, we don't know, but this is for the future. 
I do. I agree. You have to start with a with a clean slate. Clear your head of preconceptions. Look at what the contemporary sources are telling you. See what you can legitimately infer from them. Now, when you're writing fiction, of course, you've got more scope to be creative. Uh, apart from the few supernatural elements in the book, which I can't seem to resist, I would not go with a, a storyline that seems perhaps um, a little bit far-fetched, unless there was some, um, or controversial, some contemporary evidence, however slender, on which to base it. For example, in the novel on Anne of Cleves, I have her having a legitimate child, well, actually two, um, but I wouldn't have done this um, had not it that there been hints in the sources that something there was something in her past. And so what the, these hints pointed at something sexual. Mm. It's interesting you were talking about how you've had to kind of re-research because there's so much mm. historical detail in this. It really brings her life alive. Mm. And I was going to ask you, does that, do you have to research afresh or does all that knowledge is already embedded in your mind from previous books you've written? Well, I, I, I mean, I'm familiar with it. Mm. You can't remember all the details from previous books. But it is, I know my way around the sources. And what I've done is I took the text, I managed, it was written. Six Wives was written on a typewriter, don't laugh. I got the scans back, the publisher sent me the scans and I managed to convert, convert it to a Word document. And I managed to, and so I've, I've got a text and I've revised that text. And when I come to fictionalise the book, I just fictionalise the text. I'm, I'm, but of course, each book is written solely from each queen's point of view. So things that they won't know. So you can junk loads of research. For example, when researching Catherine Howard, she has no idea about the interrogations that are going on when she's been arrested. And so I had to junk pages and pages of research. Mm. And yet that, that will come through. And I've written e-shorts to accompany the series. And there's an, they're all be, they've all been collected in a book called In the Shadow of Queens. You know, you can get different angles because when you're writing solely from the Queen's point of view, you're not going to get the whole story. Well, it's interesting you were saying that because I know obviously you started as a non-fiction writer yes. and then you were kind of mm. 10 non-fiction books and then you moved into doing fiction. Yeah. And I'm, you've talked about some of the freedoms that you have. Yes. But as you say, there are always sort of real challenges if you're writing fiction compared with non-fiction. Yes. Not only about, well, this character wouldn't have known this was happening, but also mm. the, I've heard you talk about the importance of showing rather than telling. Yes. I'm quite interested in this. Is it perhaps that was a lesson that I have found it very hard to assimilate because I wrote my first novel for fun and showed it to my agent. He said, he said riveting story, it's about Lady Jane Grey. But it's faction. You've got to get off the fence, stop being a historian, start being a novelist. I've never stopped being a historian, but I have learned how to be a novelist. And I'm still learning. You learn with every book. He passed it to an editor who worked with his agency, and she, she said, you need to show rather than tell. So you don't rely on narrative. You don't say Anne Boleyn was angry. You show her being angry so that the reader can visualise it. You know, Anne clenched her fists, Anne gritted her teeth, you know, that kind of thing. It's not, you, you just don't say she was angry because it's boring. You need to make that come to life. And it's something, I thought when they kept saying show rather than tell, I thought it meant description. I couldn't get my head around it. I've learned it over the years and it was a painful, painful task. <laughs> you think you know your craft, you have to go back to square mm. one because you learn something with every book anyway. I mean, I'm sure this is a question you get asked all the time, but what do you think it is about the Tudor period that keeps readers and writers so intrigued. You couldn't make it up. <laughs> I mean, a king with six wives, a 17-year-old girl becomes Queen of England for nine days and then loses her head. 
the Mary and the martyrs and Philip of Spain, and then Elizabeth coming to the a bankrupt kingdom at the age of 25, and she's still there 45 years later. It's, inc it's an incredible story of survival. And it's, we have our first female monarchs. It's not just that. It's not just the dynamic characters, the, the vivid story, the, the revolutions that are taking place socially and religiously and culturally. It's also uh, the fact that this is a, that thanks to the spread of diplomacy and printing, we've got a fantastic written record. And but if you go back 50 years to the reign of Richard III, you've nothing like the same kind of source material. And Henry VIII's great matter, his divorce from Catherine Barragan, brought the royal marriage into public focus like never before in our history. And this, this coincides with some excellent ambassadors at court and no details too trivial to be reported. And we've got this wealth of information for the first time about the private lives of kings and queens. There's not enough, though. There is enough that is not known to make to, to leave these subjects controversial. I believe that it was uh, a history book chosen almost by chance from a library. It was a novel. <laughs> it was not. It was a. It was a rather a novel with a rather lurid jacket called Henry's Golden Queen by a, an author called Lozania Prol who also wrote as Ursula Bloom. And she wrote many, many historical novels, and I picked this one up because my mother had marched me into a library when I was 14 and said, get a book, because she was fed up. I'd graduated from books to pop magazines and comics. So I got this book, book out the adult library. I was walking around thinking, boring, boring, and the lurid jacket drew me. Well, I sat, it was about Henry VIII, Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn, and I sat in a chair for two days and devoured it. And I was so hooked by this period, by what had happened. I wanted to, also it was a little bit sexy. I mean, I was 14 and, you know, never read anything like that. And did people really go on and like that in those days? And so as soon as I went back to my school library and I went to the City of London School and they had a fantastic library. And um, I started to try and find out the truth and I'm still looking for it. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so this passion was born overnight. Finally, I understand you're currently working on a new project, which is the Tudor Rose series. Yes. Uh, and it spans three generations and yeah. starts with Henry VIII's mother, yes. Elizabeth of York. Yes. And so what can you tell us about this new project? Well, it's, it's a generations thing and it, it starts with Elizabeth of York because, um, because I think she is a key to understanding Henry. And her story is very dramatic. It spans the period from the Wars of the Roses to the Tudors and the very dramatic era of Bolsworth. This is, this is an amazing period of history. And of course, it encapsulates the story of what happened to her brothers, the princes in the tower, something on which I've written before. In fact, I've written a biography of Elizabeth before. And also how Elizabeth, uh, how, how Henry's impressions of his mother informed his views on women. That's my theory. So the story in Elizabeth, I mean, it ends when he's 11. And it's a tragic loss for him. But his story, which I'm about to start next week, well, I've done half a morning, will pick up from there. And he sees her as the idealised queen and she is the benchmark against which he judges all his wives. There's nothing better than hearing an expert talk about a subject they're passionate about. And it was such an interesting insight into the difference between writing for fiction and writing for non-fiction. Yeah, I found it was so interesting to hear about her research technique of, of not trying to force any new perspectives when she approaches her research and just sort of letting the, the facts show her what she can write about. But now on to the next section of the podcast where our colleague Craig and I were joined by Vicky from Eastie Library to talk about one of her favourite books. 
Hi, Vicky. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So we're here with you in Eastie Library at the top of the Swan Centre. But tell us what kind of activities that you've been doing at Eastie Library recently. Yeah, well, we've got lots of great activities, particularly for children. So we've had rhyme time this morning, which is really popular with our parents with young babies. I think a lot of people, because of COVID, haven't had much opportunity to get out and meet other parents and kind of be with other people. So they're already enjoying that. We have story time on a Tuesday as well, where we read a selection of stories for small children. Then we have crafts and what we call stay and play afterwards, where we basically just put out loads of toys and the kids just kind of get into those. We also have construction club on a Saturday, which is making things with construction bricks. And we have something called Fun With Languages every other week as well, which one of my colleagues does, who used to be a language teacher, so she does lots of rhymes and stories, kind of content for small children in different languages. So they really enjoy that as well. So that's something we have that's kind of unique to EC Library, which is particularly special. It's a load of fun activities there, and it always amazes me the breadth of different activities that we have on offer at our libraries, because I think a lot of people wouldn't necessarily know, you know, you might anticipate maybe, you know, some craft, but that breadth that you just talked about, um, it really does offer a lot for, you know, a lot of children across a lot of different ages, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. And at Eastern Library, I think one of our most popular things is the children's activities and the children's books. So our children's library makes up a really large proportion of our library and we just continually made it bigger because that is really what our customer base wants is the children's books and the children's activities. It's real kind of family place, really. So now onto your book recommendation. Would you like to tell us a bit about your book and why you've chosen it? Yeah, so I have chosen the book Nobody Told Me Poetry and Parenthood by Holly McNish. Um, I've chosen it because I think it's a really interesting book, whether you've had a small child or not. So it goes through from her child's birth up until three years, and it's quite episodic, just different kind of notes that she's captured, different poems that she's kind of written about um, what it's like to be a new parent, really, and kind of following her through that journey. So I really enjoyed it as somebody who has had a child. I actually, initially I was going to read it when I had a small child, but I ended up reading it a little bit later because it is hard to read when you have a small child, but it is very kind of short chapters, short kind of sections. So that does make it a lot easier to read in the free time that you do have as a parent. Yes, definitely. And I jumped into reading it. Um, I had a bit of a Google, just sort of, I quite like to know what I'm going into um, before I start a book. And, um, she won, I saw, the, uh, the Ted Hughes Prize for Poetry. Um, yes. And there was, an, there was a really interesting interview with her where she was talking about how she doesn't, she's not being humble, she doesn't think that she won it for the poetry or for the sort yeah. of form. I think that really, I think that's kind of what's special about this book, isn't it? Is that it's, it, it isn't about the poetry necessarily. It's about kind of what's going on. How did you think it matched up to poetry that you've read before? Um, well, I have read quite a bit of poetry before. I do um, borrow poetry sometimes from the library and we do have a great kind of poetry section. But I think it was just, I really liked the way it mixed the poetry with the prose. So it's kind of a diary of what's happening in her life. And then she just, she said that she wrote the poems. They're not kind of really polished poems. They're just sort of ideas that came to her. And there are real kind of snippets. I think it's the sort of book that you could kind of flick through and find poems that really kind of mean 
a lot to you and kind of different sections that she covers as well that are particularly interesting on all sort of different parenting things so things that you would expect like giving birth but there's also things about when her child was two and she just had a massive tantrum in the street <laughs> and trying to deal with that which i think everyone has been there really if they have a small child there's always some point where they have a tantrum in the middle of the street and just won't stop screaming <laughs> and then you think well what do you do and she handles it all in quite a kind of humorous fun way and it's quite open and honest as well so i think yeah it is i think some people may be put off by it if they think oh i'm not really into reading poetry but i think you don't have to be someone it's not that, that kind of thing reading poetry at school of kind of deconstructing all the really complex words i think it's just kind of capturing an experience really in the poems some parts are quite controversial and the poems yeah. use rhyme in a way that works quite well when read aloud do you think that comes through when you're reading it yeah i didn't read it aloud to myself but yeah i think if you go on her website you can see some videos of her reading some of the poems from this so i think there is something different about seeing them aloud. Like she, on her website, she reads the poem Embarrassed, which is all about breastfeeding and feeling like you have to kind of, she talks about breastfeeding in a toilet because she didn't feel like she could do it in public and how our kind of society is quite happy with showing breasts in kind of a sexual way, but not so comfortable about breastfeeding. So I suppose something like that is quite controversial. It's quite, when particularly when she reads it, it is quite, um, quite a forceful statement, but then I think it really captures a lot of the way that mums do feel about it. So I think while it is kind of quite provocative, I think there is a lot of people who really feel like she is speaking speaking for them. Currently, libraries are a place where we do kind of encourage breastfeeding and being comfortable. And we have stickers outside the library saying this is a breastfeeding friendly place that you can come. So I think that kind of connects with the kind of ethos of the library as well, wanting to be a welcoming place for new parents who are, some of them will want to breastfeed in the library. Yeah, I think um, what, what I found really, really interesting about the poetry collection as well is that it, it doesn't just talk about the kind of physical pain of, of yeah. pregnancy and birth, but she really tenderly talks about the the vulnerability and the exclusion of, of being pregnant and of being a mother and of going through birth and, and the feelings of fear. And I, I yeah. remember that she, she, obviously, because it's a diary, we don't actually see the kind of, I don't know, scene, if you like, where she's yeah. giving birth because she wasn't writing in her diary yeah. at the time. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit occupied. Yeah, a little bit. But um, she does talk about the utter fear that she's going to die during childbirth and yes. then this horrible feeling of, leaving the hospital and being like well is somebody going to tell me what to do because i don't know what to do and the, the i think that that really that really struck me was there any sort of particular parts of it that really sort of spoke to you um i think there's various different speak bits of it that kind of spoke to me one as you say from the birth i know afterwards she said she says in it oh they wrote on my chart that i had quite a simple straightforward birth and she said i really wanted a well done because however simple and straightforward your birth is it's still a really kind of there's a reason they call it labor <laughs> it's a really difficult ordeal to go through um so i think that spoke to me and there's also a poem that i really loved and it was called grandparent love about how much grandparents love their grandchildren which i really like because you don't really see we do have a few picture books in the library about grandparents looking after children but you don't really kind of see that captured in kind of books for adults about how much grandparents really love their children there's also a poem in there about 
boys and girls and how they're kind of trying to lead them down a different path. And she talks about how much her daughter loves trains because they spend a lot of time on trains, which I do with my son, and how people always say, oh, it's really weird that she's into trains. Boys usually like trains. And why is your little girl playing with trains? So I, I did really enjoy the poem about, she talks about making different paths for kind of boys and girls need to go down and say, oh, no, you need pink things and you're a boy, so you should be, you should be the one who wants the trains and stuff. So... I think, I know with the books in the library, we try and have different books that appeal to all different children and not have that kind of, this is a book for a boy and this is a book for a girl and kind of letting them choose what it is they're interested in. So that kind of spoke to me as well. I really liked that there's a bit of blurb in the opening, which explains that this, you know, collection of poems isn't perfect. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's some are rushed, some are uncut, some are too long. Uh, all the things that author can talk about whilst going through the early stages of parenthood. So what would you say to someone who maybe isn't keen on this type of book and how would you recommend uh, Nobody Told Me? Well, as I said earlier, I think the idea of it being poetry does kind of put people off. But I would say it's more kind of a, a diary and that it is kind of very honest and open about being a parent. So I think it's a sort of book that you could read if you want to become a parent or if you're just interested in kind of what that experience is like really and it is really it's really funny in parts it is really entertaining and I think you will find bits that either surprise you if you haven't had a baby or that you really relate to I know there's a story in here where she goes to a club to see her partner doing a kind of spoken word gig and everyone goes why are you in here you're pregnant you shouldn't be here you're in a club and that kind of experience of being in when you are pregnant, people expect you to kind of appear in certain set places and seeing a pregnant woman kind of in a different context, that people find that really strange. So I think there is a lot of stuff in it that is really relatable. I would kind of recommend it to any new parent. But by the same token, it's a little bit like when you read Catelyn Moran's How to Be a Woman. If you are a woman, it's really interesting. But it is also really interesting if you're not a woman because you get that insight into it. So I think I wouldn't be put off if you're not a parent because it is really an interesting insight into how these things work. And I thought it was quite inspiring as well in a lot of places. For sure. And I think uh, like even the topics we've discussed so far, you know, breastfeeding, you know, uh, raising a baby yeah. to any specific gender. A lot of these things are kind of topical things that will crop up. I mean, yeah. the book was written in 2016, was it? 2016, So, yeah. you know, these things often crop up, you know, every so often. and. There's a lot of touch points in there, you know, uh, with a lot of the, the, the stories in there um, that are relatable, you know, yeah. even to people that aren't parents. Yeah, and I, I think it being called poetry, I think, can, can definitely scare people off, but it's yeah. not, it's not, it's sort of a poetry for people who do not like poetry, yeah. really, isn't it? Because it, it's, the, that is the best part of it, is that it really doesn't, it doesn't make you feel like you're reading poetry. You don't feel like you're being excluded by this very sort of rigid Yes. form that people often find quite inaccessible. I was sort of struggling to think of what to compare it to, but I think your, your comment about it being similar to, to Catelyn Moran is absolutely yeah. brilliant. It's really got that kind of confessional tone, yeah. that kind of, you know, speaking truth to power element to it. But what books would you, would you recommend to somebody who enjoys this one? 
I would recommend probably checking out our library parents collection because there's a lot of memoirs in there about being a parent. So if you like that, I think you would like some of the other things that are in there. It's interesting to me that this book, I've, I borrowed this book and it's in the kind of poetry and literature section, but I think it could just as easily be in a parent's collection because it is very much a book about parenting. But I think we always have that difficult thing in the library of well, where do you put a book? Do we put it in the poetry section? Do we put it in the parenting section? Do we put it in the biography section? Because a lot of this is poems, but there is also quite a lot of prose in there as well. So I think it is kind of hard to know where to put it in terms of finding that audience. The copy I have was in the poetry section because that's where, probably because it's one, the tend to use for poetry. But I also kind of, you always worry in the library, wherever we put a book, it's kind of, it's putting it into a box that might mean that other people might not find it as an and find an audience and that's kind of one of the reasons I really want to talk about it is to kind of find a wider audience for this book that kind of people think oh well I wouldn't go and look in the poetry section because some people would just think oh no that's not for me I'm not going to look in the poetry section and they would probably miss this book when actually they might really enjoy it. She is also releasing a new book as well called Slug which is currently on order in the library which has been very well acclaimed as well so I'm quite excited to read that one that's more of a general one it's not about parenting but it's a kind of similar style to this one. It's got prose and poetry in, so I'm quite excited. Fantastic. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to joining you again in Eastley Library soon. It's time to look at some of our unlimited Box titles for the month. These are the e-books and audiobooks you can download straight away, even if loads of other people are reading them at the same time. You can browse the full list of titles in our episode show notes. But one of the ones that really stood out to me was uh, Lovecraft Country by Matt Ruff. It's a horror drama that was recently turned into a TV series by HBO. And another one that I saw was was quite interesting is Scythe by Neil Shusterman, uh, which has become a real sort of YA classic in the, in the last couple of years. Oh, I haven't read that. I shall have to look out for it. But our online reading group has chosen The Humans by Matt Haig as their book of the month. You can download the book now on Borrowbox as an audiobook or ebook and join the conversation through our Hampshire Libraries Facebook group. That's it for this episode of Love Your Library. Thank you for joining us and thank you to Borrowbox for supporting this podcast. I'm Isaac Fravashi. And I'm Kate Price McCarthy. <laughs>